If you've got a Bible, in Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be again this week. We've got one more thing to see here before we move on to Jonah chapter 2. Um, and I'm trying to give it in more bite-sized pieces. So um, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be again. Taking a look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10 is what we're going to read this morning. And if you've got a copy of it in front of you, you can follow along there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. But beginning in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1, the author writes, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is God's word. A few weeks ago, I was speaking to one of our church members uh, on a phone call. and We were talking about how things were going in their life and uh, things were unfolding in their family. And they made mention to me of the fact that um, back in the fall, whenever we had committed ourselves as a church to the next five initiative, uh, that a part of their commitment had been to sell some of their possessions and be able to use the proceeds in order to donate that to the initiative to help us take steps further and faster. And they had told me they had just sold a, a piece of equipment and they were, had gotten more than what they expected for it, and so they were going to be donating that to the church. And I just sat there on the, on, uh, over the course of that conversation and just thanked God for um, the blessing it is to have folks who are all in with us and investing in what God is doing here in the life of our church and in our community, willing to sell some of their own possessions and be able to distribute those funds as needed to the church for the advancement of God's kingdom in this little corner of God's kingdom here through our local church. So what a blessing that is. Uh, but I was also reminded that whenever we cast vision for the next five last fall, we talked not only about raising funds to, for the eventual purchase of land, right? that was a part of it, finding and funding a permanent home, but there were three other things that came before us talking about money, and that was reaching our neighbors, raising disciples, and launching leaders. Right, those three pieces of being a continued faithful gospel witness in the community where God has planted us as a church, seeing people coming to faith in Christ, seeing their character and conviction shaped and formed into the image of Christ, and then seeing them launched out as leaders who assume opportunities and responsibilities and ministry, some here within this church, some outside the walls of this church, and some to plant other churches. So reaching and raising and launching, right? That was a part of that big picture vision that we cast back last fall. And if we really as a church body commit ourselves to those three things, reaching and raising and launching, then listen church, we cannot be asleep below deck while the world is in chaos above. 
Rather, as God's people in a lost and chaotic world. And I, I, I believe as, as we read here in Jonah chapter 1, one of the things that stood out to me that I thought was worthy of a sermon in and of itself was this reality. That as God's people in a lost and chaotic world, we must learn to practice our personal faith for the public good. Practice our personal faith for the public good. There's an old Scottish preacher by the name of Hugh Martin in the 1800s, late 17th century. He preached a sermon from this particular text entitled, The World Rebuking the Church. The World Rebuking the Church. And if you want to read some of Hugh Martin's writings, you can find it on the Kindle store. He's got this massive exposition of the book of Jonah, more massive than anything I've ever read before. So um, it's highly, highly edifying and encouraging. But in that sermon, he makes several observations. First, he says that many in the world take great pleasure in criticizing the church for her faithfulness to the Lord. Right? And we see that even in our day and time. Right, as the church aims to be faithful to God's vision for human flourishing and what that looks like for sexuality or what that looks like for money or what that looks like in terms of, 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 of life being conceived and when it starts in the womb, the world will lob grenades and critique and criticize the church for holding to what we believe to be biblically faithful doctrines. And the world takes great pleasure in criticizing the church for those things. But he goes on to make the observation, and he says, in many instances, the world and the church, he doesn't say it this way because he uses a lot of old English, but he says basically the world and the church in so many instances are in the same boat together. They live in the same country, the same state, the same city, the same community, and the same neighborhood. And whenever a storm breaks loose in that country or community, then citizens of that country and community and residents of that same place, they have the same problems, regardless of whether or not they are members of a church, whether or not they belong to Christ. If you live in that location, you're facing the same issues, the same economic problems, the same criminal issues, the same social issues, the same educational issues. You face the same issues if you live in the same places. And he goes on to say, when the church is asleep below deck while the boat is breaking apart, when the, when the world has the right to rebuke the church, and this is exactly what we see happening in verse 6 of Jonah chapter 1. In verse 6, listen, we find a heathen captain rebuking a Hebrew prophet. <laughs> Notice what happens when the captain finds Jonah below deck in verse 6. He is rebuked for his indifference and callous, the callousness with which he operates. The words on the tongue of the captain when he comes down below deck and he finds Jonah fast asleep are the exact same words on the tongue of the Lord in verse 2. In verse 2, God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against her, for her evil has risen up before me. Arise, call out. And in verse 6, when the captain comes down below, you can imagine Jonah awaking from his sleep and rubbing the little crusty sleep boogers out of his eyes, right? And hearing these words once again, not from the mouth of God, but now from the mouth of this pagan heathen captain saying, Arise, call out. Arise, call out. That's exactly what Jonah hears. The captain 
calls to Jonah to do something while the rest of the crew struggles for their lives above deck. And yet Jonah remains asleep under the deck. Essentially, the captain says, your personal faith, call out to your God. Maybe your God will have favor on us. Maybe your God would save us. Essentially, the captain says, Jonah, your personal faith must be practiced for some kind of public good or it's not worth anything. See, our identity, church, our identity as the people of God ought to be a blessing to God's world. It ought to be a blessing to God's world. We see this truth communicated all throughout the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man by the name of Abram and He says, leave your mother and father's home. Go to this land that I will show you and I will make a great nation out of you. Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand in the seashore. And He says, I am choosing you that you might be blessed by Me and be of what? You know it, a blessing to the nations of the world. In Jeremiah chapter 29, whenever God sends His people into exile in Babylon, there's a false prophet there operating, telling the people, he says, listen, stay out of the city. Don't go in there. They're going to destroy you. They're going to devour you. They're going to eat you up. Remain this kind of separatist sect outside the city walls. And Jeremiah says, listen, don't listen to that joker. He's a false prophet. He says, rather what the Lord says is I want you in your time of exile living outside of your homeland, I want you to build houses. I want you to plant vineyards. I want you to give your children in marriage because whenever the city prospers, you prosper. You you pursue your welfare by pursuing its welfare. Be a blessing to those to whom you have been sent. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that we are not saved by our works. We're not saved by our works, but by grace through faith and in Christ, that rather we are saved for work, for these good works that God has prepared for us to walk in in advance, to be a blessing to one another and be a blessing to God's world. Our identity as, the, as God's people ought to be a blessing to God's world ought to be a blessing to God's world but unfortunately oftentimes we like Jonah can be found sleeping below deck while the great needs of the world as chaos swirls around us are left unaddressed and if we're going to commit ourselves to reaching raising and launching church then I if I had to tag this text with a title I would call it outshining the world and there's three ways I believe we ought to outshine the world when it comes to practicing our faith for some public good and that is this First of all, outshine the world in holiness. Outshine the world in holiness. Now, before we can get to this in the text this morning, in Jonah chapter 1, let's try to understand what holiness, first of all, is not, and then what it is. Alright, holiness, there's, there's several popular, I think fundamentally flawed understandings of holiness, and the first one is that holiness is to keep a long list of rules. Long list of rules. As a result, when people operate out of uh, thinking that holiness is keeping this long list of commands or this long list of rules, right, there's this concept of, of holiness that arises and people would critique and complain about this type of holiness and say that he or she is holier than thou, right? Because they're better at keeping all the rules than anyone else. 
right? It communicates that concept or that idea. And usually the individuals who are holier than thou, they know it and they act like it. There's kind of a smugness or a pride, an unapproachability about them when it comes to their ability to connect with other people. They're operating with, a, with this popular misconception of holiness rather than a biblical one. And one of the ways you can recognize it is because people with this misconception of holiness, they tend to repel people, not attract them to themselves. Because people look at them and go, I can never keep all the rules like you do. But listen, holiness is not looking at God and saying, God, if you will just give me all the rules, I'll keep them. That's not what holiness is. Another popular misunderstanding of holiness is that to be holy is to be a good person with maybe just a few bad habits. Right? So, and here's how this often works. People will generate a list of character qualities they believe to be virtuous, which often varies from person to person. Right? And they're often uniquely characterized by the traits that individual excels at themselves. Right? So that's what it means to be holy. Right? The things that I'm good at, that's what it means to be holy. The positions I hold, that's what it means to be holy. And they measure holiness and the holiness of another individual on the basis of whether or not they, the people are kind or tolerant or accepting or generous or patient. And those who don't exhibit those qualities are not holy. But holiness is not looking at God and saying, give me all the rules so I can keep them. And holiness is also not looking at everyone else around us and saying, look how much of a better person I am than they are. That's not holiness either. Now, holiness is not less than recognizing God's ordained boundaries established for our good, nor is it less than the cultivation of certain character qualities in our lives that would bloom and ripen. But listen, church, it is much more. It goes beyond that. Right? In addition, holiness is, is not a lease contract with God. Where you remain the owner and he's the tenant. Okay? When you see, when you lease a piece of property to someone, whenever you rent a home to someone, uh, basically, if you're the owner, you can say you can use this property or you can use this home for this particular purpose, but you can't use it for this one, right? So you can live there, but you can't operate a business out of it, right? right? You, you can stipulate that in the lease contract. And many people approach personal holiness as a lease contract where they're leasing a part of their life to God, but they're retaining the ownership. In other words, God, you can have this part or you can have this part for your purposes, but not this one and not this one and not this one. You can have my time on a Sunday morning, but not on a Monday morning. Or you can have my time on a Tuesday night, but not on a Sunday morning. You can have my time, but not my money, or my money, but not my time. You can have anything you want from me, but leave my kids to me. Leave them alone. And sometimes, sometimes some of us are trying to manufacture happiness for our children in ways that would circumvent their holiness. Essentially, we're trying to lease ourselves to God and retain ownership. But listen, what holiness is biblically is giving ourselves holy to the Lord. In the Old Testament, when someone or something was holy, it was set apart for God's use, set apart for God's purposes. So you had holy people in the Old Testament, like priests who were set apart for the functions of the temple. You had holy places in the Old Testament, like 
the, the, the tabernacle or like the temple, the place that was used in worship of God. These people, these places were set apart for God's purposes. They were set apart for God's use. That's what it was to be holy in the Old Testament. A holy life is one, listen, that has given up the right to determine right from wrong myself, brings every decision in subjection to the King of creation and to His commands, to His decrees. To be holy means to say this, God, You have given me life. I owe You my life. My life is Yours. Use me for Your purposes. Use me however You see fit. Everything that I am is yours. That's holiness. Being consecrated or set apart unto the Lord. And listen, church, this is where Jonah misses the boat. No pun intended. You see, Jonah, he was leading, he was leasing his life to the Lord. When God wanted to use Jonah for a purpose that Jonah was not on board with, Jonah tried to terminate the lease contract and evict the Lord. From his life. So in, in verse 9, when Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, he is, as we said last week, he's making a statement that is theologically true, but is personally false for him because he was not operating as one whose life was consecrated to God, saying, God, use me. I do fear you. I revere you. I regard you above all things. That's not how Jonah was operating. By his actions, Jonah was saying, God, you can use me here in Israel to minister to people who are like me, like-minded with me, who think the same way, have the same perspectives, but God, don't you dare send me to people outside of these borders, outside of these boundaries. You cannot send me wherever you would like. You cannot use me however you see fit. In other words, I retain ownership and I will lease this portion of my life back to you. Listen, I got a question for us this morning, church. Are you set apart for God's purposes? Do you see yourself as one belonging to Him? See, each of us must reckon with this reality in our lives. Each and every one of us. And if we as a church body are to move forward by reaching and raising and launching, then we have to not only say that we belong to the Lord, that we have a covenant relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are indwelt by His Holy Spirit, but we must live like it by saying what Jonah would not say. You gave me life. Everything I have belongs to You. Use me for Your purposes. I'm yours. And listen, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you're a Christian this morning, then you must say, God, you own me twice over. Not only did you give me life, but you brought me to new life. So you own me twice over. Everything that I have is yours. If we're really going to see this kind of church that reaches and raises and launches, we've got to outshine the world in holiness not hold portions of our life back from the Lord, but say, God, use me, all of me, for your glory and the good of this place that you have planted us. Second of all, we must outshine the world in compassion. In compassion. 
And I want you to notice the events that transpire in verse 5. The sailors, they grow very, very fearful because they see this storm as something unlike which they had never seen before in their lives. And they begin to cry out to their gods. They start dumping cargo into the sea. And while Jonah goes down below deck and falls fast asleep, while the world above him is threatening to break up. Listen, one Jewish commentator on the book of Jonah, his name is Uriel Simon, and he said this, and I find it helpful for us to understand what's happening here in the text. It says, he said, the word order in the Hebrew language with a subject before a verb in the perfect tense. Now, you've got to bear with me for a second. It gets a little technical, but I'm going to try and simplify it for you. But a, 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 the subject before a verb in the perfect tense expresses one of two things. An action that preceded another one that has just been related. In other words, something that was done that came before what was just talked about. Or an action that is simultaneous with and contrasted to one that has just been recounted. In other words, it happened at the same time and there are contrasting responses. He says, because Jonah's action is contrasted with that of the other sailors, it seems likely that he went down into the hold and fell asleep at the very same time as the sailors were struggling through prayer and action to save the ship. So it wasn't that Jonah went down below deck before all this started to transpire. It was that Jonah went down below deck as everything began to get chaotic and erupt. Simultaneously, Jonah's response was not to cry out to his God and not to help lighten the load, but Jonah's response was to go down below and fall asleep. And the picture that's painted by that is Jonah's utter disregard for what's going on around him. While the sailors were fearfully and prayerfully working, Jonah is indifferently and callously sleeping. And how often, church, do we head down below deck and fall asleep while the world's coming apart around us? How often have we forsaken a lost world when we know the answer to their greatest problem? See, the world's greatest problem is not economics. The world's greatest problem is not education. The world's greatest problem right, is not the treatment of of the different races. The world's greatest problem is their estrangement from God Himself, a separation that has been the result of sin that entered into the world when our first parents took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin entered into the world, thereby dividing us from God and dividing us from one another. That's the world's greatest problem. And how often have we been asleep at the wheel and refused to share the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return whenever we see the world beginning to unravel around us? How often have we abandoned a divided world or been just as divided in the church when we profess to believe in a gospel for both Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female? How often have we fallen asleep and let the world outshine us when it comes to caring for people who are in distress while we sing about a God who cared for us in our distress? How often? 
Then in verse 6, when the captain comes below deck and he finds Jonah asleep in the storm, he asks him a piercing question. And this is the question that he asks Jonah. He says, what do you mean, you sleeper? What do you mean? In other words, the captain asked Jonah, how can you sleep at a time like this? How can you be asleep when everything is chaotic and unraveling? Don't you care about what's going on around us? Don't you care about what's happening to us? Don't you care about anyone other than yourself? See, the opposite of the callousness that Jonah exhibits in the text is compassion. It is compassion. Now, compassion is a, is a term that has kind of grown soft in our use of it today. But in the Bible, the word compassion referred to a literal gut-level reaction to human, real human conditions that drove someone not only to feel for the people in those conditions, but to act to alleviate those conditions. That's why when Jesus is walking through the land... And he's observing the conditions of the people. And he makes the statement in the Gospels. And he observes the people as those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible tells us that whenever he makes that observation, that he is moved to compassion. And that word compassion literally means a turning over of the gut. This gut reaction that would want to compel someone to action to do something about the condition with, that he, he finds those individuals in. So compassion, biblically, is a gut reaction that leads to action. It's a gut reaction that leads to action. And listen, the church ought to be the most compassionate people on the planet. Not callously asleep when things are unraveling. We ought to care deeply about the needs in our community, in our state, in our nation, and across the globe. We ought to be moved to action whenever people are hurting, whenever they're fearful, whenever people are mistreated, abused, or abandoned. We ought to be the first in line with the good news of the Gospel, motivated by it and its implications as well to assist orphans. Those who are fatherless and motherless because you and I were once orphans separated from God and God as our Father adopted us. And so we ought to be the first in line to assist with orphan care. Whether that be us adopting orphans into our homes or whether that be us supporting those ministries that do or those families who take that step. We ought to be the first in line to bring the good news to young women dealing with unexpected pregnancies. Listen, we can, we, we can pray that God would overturn laws in our nation all day long. And God, I hope that He does. So that it's no longer legal to end life once it's begun in the womb. But listen, as a church, will we care for those mothers who are carrying those babies to term? Rather than saying, well, they, should, they brought this on themselves. They shouldn't have been dressing the way they dressed. Will we move into that space and care for them? Those struggling without fathers in the home. Will we get involved in mentoring relationships and investing our time and our energy into those who need it the most? Whose marriages are falling apart. Those whose world have been upended by unexpected loss. Will we be the kind of people who operate in compassion and outshine the world 
All the nonprofits that are out there doing all this great work, will we as God's people move into those spaces with the good news of the gospel and with a compassion for our fellow man and our fellow woman who are made in God's image just as we are? The thing Jonah would not do. To go into the places of greatest need. Outshine the world in holiness. God, use me. Use me. There's nothing that I'm keeping for myself. You own me twice over. Use me for your purposes. And we move with compassion to care for those who are in need. But then finally, the only way that we'll move into action in the middle of a storm is if we care about, not only care about what's happening and set ourselves apart to be used by God for His purposes, but listen, we must also outshine the world in security. In security. Now if you fast forward from the book of Jonah into the Gospels, we read about another sleeper in another boat in another storm. And in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, Mark records this incident. He says, on that day, when the evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now there's several notable differences between Mark 4 and Jonah 1. Several notable, perhaps one of the the most notable difference is that in Jonah 1, the sailors in Jonah find themselves in the storm as the result of Jonah's sin and disobedience. That's why they are where they are. That's why the waves are crashing over the bow of the boat and they're trying to lighten the load and cry out to any God who would hear them and answer. However, in Mark chapter 4, the disciples find themselves in the storm precisely because of their obedience to Jesus. Jesus says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. They're in that boat on that sea because Jesus said, we got to cross over. We've got some place to go. And as they sail through the evening hours, the storm erupts, but they are there because they responded and said, yes to God. We're set apart for Your service, Lord. Use us. That's why they're there. There's some similarities to these two stories as well. It would seem that the sailors in Jonah chapter 1 find themselves in a position of great fear and reverence for God whenever they throw Jonah overboard and the sea dies down, the winds stop blowing, the waves get calm and placid. And the disciples, they find themselves 
filled with great fear as well because they saw the storm and they were afraid of that and now they have an even greater terror because they asked themselves and one another, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And Mark wants us to understand that whenever they ask that question, who then is this? That the answer to that question is the one who made those winds and the one who made that sea. Because the one who made it has the right to command it. And listen, church, regardless of what kind of... We've, we've, we've been in storms. In our, in our culture, in our country, in our, our globally over the course of these last couple of years that have risen up. Whether it be literal metaphor, literal meteorological storms that have wrecked places, or whether they be metaphorical storms of division amongst peoples, a great pandemic that has swept the globe, whatever, whatever you want to fill in that blank with, we've been in the midst of storms, but as a church, the way that we witness to a lost and hurting and broken and divided world is that we live with an unshakable security because the one who's in the boat with us has the right to command the wind and the waves. And they still respond to His voice. So we have security. And we show the world what it looks like to live with a certainty and a hope that outshines anything that legislation can do. So will we be a church that reaches and raises and launches? In order to do that, we cannot be asleep below deck. We must be willing to say what Jonah would not. Use me. With no borders, no boundaries, if that means you want to use me to multiply a new life group or you want to use me to launch a new church or God, you want to use me to start a new ministry or God, you want to use me in an area of our community that I've never set foot in before because those people aren't like me or God, if you want to use me wherever you would send, whatever you would burden my heart with, here I am. Send me. And a deep compassion that cares for the needs of people, bringing them the gospel, but also addressing some of the needs in their lives, showing that the church is a community of people who have been loved by God and are loving His world and living with an unshakable, rock-solid security no matter how chaotic things become in your own life personally or in our lives corporately as a city, as a nation, as a world. That's how we'll go about reaching people and raising disciples and launching leaders as we practice our personal faith for the public good and outshine the world in holiness and compassion and in security. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we thank you today. And whenever a hard word is needed, you're not afraid to give it, even through the mouth of a 
pagan sea captain. And what so many believe to be a children's story. But Father, that you speak to us clearly through your word. To rebuke us when we need to be rebuked. To encourage us where we need to be encouraged. To remind us of truths that we have perhaps forgotten. Would you remind us, Father, that we belong to you. That we cannot put borders and boundaries. That we cannot lease space in our life to you, but you own everything. From our thoughts to our desires to our actions. And Father, while we can learn many lessons from those who exceed our faithfulness throughout the biblical story, we also learn many lessons from those who fail to be what you've called them to be. May we learn from Jonah and repent of any callousness in our hearts that you would fill us with hearts of compassion. care for those in our community. And that compassion, that gut reaction to the real condition of real people would drive us to action and to be involved. When we see a need that we would not pull the covers over our head and rest in our warm, comfortable beds, but that we would stand to our feet and we would labor to meet a need in the life of a neighbor, in the life of a friend, in the life of a co-worker, in the life of a child. And may we witness to the world in the midst of all the chaos that there is one who commands the chaos and that we are secure because of him and they can be as well. we be a church that practices this personal faith that we have in you for the good of the people and the place that you have sent us. We ask it in Christ's name.